Let's return to Acts. And we come to chapter 3. And we will go through, uh, we will go through verse 10 this morning. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Lord, in the same way that that day, all in attendance were filled with wonder and amazement at what you had done. I dare ask that by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that healed this man, that we would be filled with awe and amazement at what you have done. Lord, help us to see ourselves in this story. Not just in this man's condition, but in this man's redemption. That our hearts would literally leap for joy like he leapt for joy at what you have done and what you promised to do. Lord, for our expectations and hopes in the preaching of your word to happen, it takes your spirit. And so come, Holy Spirit, upon the hearers of your word that you may prepare them to hear rightly. And come, Holy Spirit, upon me, the preacher of your word, that I might preach it rightly. We are all in this room dependent upon you. But you are faithful. And so remember your faithfulness to us in Jesus' name. Amen. What I, don't, what I, want, um, what I want to do this morning, if you don't mind, is to begin um, with doing, doing my sermon a little unconventional. Instead of offering an introduction, I want to offer an explanation. Uh, preaching is not... Uh, is not merely teaching. If 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 you um, if your conception of preaching is that it's just teaching, that's that's wrong. Uh, preaching is teaching, yes, but expositing, proclaiming, applying, and all these different things. But there are times when a passage requires a bit more teaching than usual, and I actually think this is one of those. Today is uh, not only the first apostolic miracle in Acts. It is by far the most detailed account of one. And for some, the apostles' miracles are a big stumbling block to interpreting the book of Acts. We get hung up on them with questions like, 
Did they actually happen? If so, why don't we see them happening today? Should we even expect them? Or is this something that doesn't even apply to us anymore? And the reason why this is an issue for Acts in particular is because it's the apostles, not Jesus, performing them. You read the miracles in the Gospels, and it's very easy to say, well, that's Jesus. Of course he can pull that off. But to see Peter, a man no different than me and you, to see Peter doing what Jesus did raises greater questions. So, in order to not allow this passage and subsequent miracle passages to kind of get derailed by all of these questions and debates, let me uh, spend, oh, give me five minutes to just do a brief theology lesson on what's going on here. And I'll, I'll just let that serve as my explanation for the rest of our study in Acts so I don't have to keep coming back to giving apologetic for the miracles of the apostles. So let me do my best to help you understand how this works. To, to understand the miracles in Acts, you have to first understand the role of an apostle. Jesus had many followers. Jesus had many disciples, but he only had 12 apostles. The word apostle literally means um, a one sent forth, a sent out one. Now, in, in a sense, every follower of Jesus is one sent out, sent forth, but not like the apostles were sent forth. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, who came to institute a new Israel. And like Israel of old was founded by the 12 tribes of Israel, the new Israel was founded by the 12 apostles of Jesus. That's why the Nicene Creed that we recite some Sundays say that, says that we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. When we say that apostolic church, we are, we are saying that our conviction is, is that those apostles were the foundation of this thing we call the church. So what is unique about these apostles? Well, they were endowed with the very authority of Jesus, authority to speak on his behalf and authority to act on his behalf. Their authority to speak on behalf of Jesus is what led to the formation of the New Testament. Everything in the New Testament is inspired writing that comes directly from or indirectly from the apostles. If it wasn't from an apostle, it wasn't included. Their authority to act is seen in these miracles and acts. The miracles of acts are just like the miracles of Jesus. You could read this passage and insert Jesus in the place of Peter and it would read just like something out of the Gospels. But there's one noticeable difference which makes all the difference. Jesus always performed miracles on his own authority. But verse 6, we read, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. If this were Jesus, he would simply say, rise and walk. But the apostles must invoke the name of Jesus because they have no authority in and of themselves. Now, just to invoke the name of Jesus, the, the name of Jesus is not a magic wand to get what you want. It is literally invoking the name, which is the essence of the person in that culture. The name of Jesus, I'm able to invoke that name and his power. Um, so, 
they, what, what, so what they did is they, would, they had the authority of Jesus, therefore they had the ability to invoke his name in ways that we don't. So do miracles happen today? Yes and no would be my answer, but definitely my answer would be this. Not like this, okay? In the same way that my teaching should never be viewed as apostolic teaching, as if my preaching were inspired, I was an inspired prophet of God, and what I say should be added to the canon of Scripture. We know that's ludicrous, but my acts are not endowed with the authority, the name of Jesus, and should not be expected to take the same shape of the apostles. That's not to say that miracles don't happen, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. But that is to say they don't happen like this, okay? What this is, is on demand, command. We, you know, name it and claim it, stuff, what's happening. What we do is we pray, we ask, we hope, and yes, Presbyterians, we expect. We expect, and if God sees fit to answer, he does. But the idea of anyone naming and claiming a miracle like the apostles in Acts is a misinterpretation of Scripture. And it should be noted, by the way, that those who do purport that miracles still function as thus never perform miracles like we see in the Gospels of Acts, which were meant to portray the greater miracle of the Gospel. That's why there's this inbreaking of miraculous events in the Gospels and Acts, because it's the inbreaking of of the gospel itself. And so what you see in these miracles is they were, they were always one desperate extreme to the other. An impossible situation that then becomes a reality. The blind see, the deaf hear, the leprous are cleansed, the paralyzed walk, and even the dead are raised. That's not an ailment in your body that troubles you going away. That's not an arthritic hand getting more flexibility. That's not going up on stage at a a revival and setting your walker aside and taking a few unbalanced steps and then having to go back to the walker eventually. This is death to life because this is the nature of the gospel. And so that's my explanation of the miracles of Acts. I won't return to give an apology for it every time. Um, But this is a unique time, a unique office, and the ability to invoke the name of Jesus and heal like Jesus healed is different. Now, to our passage. Why it's so important to understand what I just said is it would be so wrong for us to make this passage all about the miracle because it will lose some of us. Instead of getting hung up on the miracle, let's see the deeper meaning here, which is applicable to everyone in this room. And the meaning is this. A man asking and expecting for little, but finding and receiving something far, far greater. And here are my two points. I want us to look at what we ask for and what we find. What do we ask for? Verses 1 and 2 set the scene of the whole, whole thing. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. A man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid uh, daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. A couple important details here that help us imagine the scene. It says that this man has been lame since birth, meaning this is all he has ever known. He's never known anything but paralysis. 
It also says that they laid him daily at the gate to ask for alms, meaning this is his daily routine to sit there lame and ask for charity. You see, in in this culture, there was no social system in place to take care of the needy. And so those who could not earn a living or those who could not be supported by a family unit were were forced to rely exclusively on the generosity of others. And so begging was literally his job. Carry to the temple, ask for money all day, carry back home, again and again and again, day after day after day. Could you imagine a life like this? In some ways we cannot. Almost none of us can relate to such a debilitating condition like this, though some of us can relate to a life-altering, debilitating condition. But and, And certainly all of us are blessed to live in a time and context that is more privileged than this. And yet... In another way, I do want us to see ourselves in this man's story. In another way, every single person here this morning can relate to this man. I think that's the right reading of the text. In the same way, when we read Jesus performing miracles, it is wrong, interpretively speaking, to put yourselves in the shoes of Jesus rather than the one receiving from Jesus. Okay? That should go without saying, when you read the Gospels, you're not Jesus. You're the person getting helped by Jesus. Well, here it is wrong to put yourself in the shoes of the apostles endowed with the authority and name of Jesus' power instead of the one receiving it. So we're not Peter here, okay? We are the lame, helpless beggar. His story is our own. It gives us a window into our truest condition. His condition is our condition. And if so, then what we discover about ourselves in this man is abject helplessness. We see ourselves as helplessly dependent as a paralytic in first century culture begging for alms. Now I recognize I recognize that goes completely against the grain of our self-esteem culture that tells you ad nauseum how awesome you are and that you can do anything you put your mind to. But the Bible is here this morning to dispute that narrative. The little train that could is lying to you. You may think you can All you want, you can't. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. You can do many things. You can change your habits. You can improve your life. You can work harder. You can be successful in this world. You can do a lot of things, but you cannot get up and walk, metaphorically speaking. On an ultimate level, you are paralyzed. You can't save yourself from your sins. You can't heal your own wounds. As we said in our confession of sin, we can't do anything with these wounds. We can't do anything with these sins. It's too much for us. You can't redeem your own story and you can't resurrect your own death. 
Now, if you're a Christian, and certainly if you've been under the teaching of this church for any amount of time, you know that about yourself already. But I have a fear, and this gets to the thrust of the sermon this morning. I have a fear, and it's this. It's that you've gotten used to it. And, and even more so, I would say, that you've accepted it. That you've kind of relegated yourself to it. Meaning, because it's not possible for you, you deep down no longer believe it's possible. Look at verse 3 and let me explain what I'm saying here. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, here's my contention. Not only can we relate to his condition, I think we can relate to his request. Here are the apostles endowed with the very name of Jesus Christ, the power and authority of Jesus Christ, and he asks them for some spare change. Now, he doesn't know who Peter and John are. We don't think he knows who Peter and John are. So why would he expect anything other than what he always gets? And that is my point. Day in, day out, begging for money, trying to survive, thinking coins from strangers is the best he could ever hope for, never an inkling of thought that he could ever walk. My concern is that our crippled estate has also crippled our longings. That acknowledging our paralyzed condition before God has paralyzed our expectations of God. Now, I'm speaking about longings and expectations here, not your head. I know in your head you believe all this stuff. Your sins are forgiven. You're going to heaven. Jesus will wipe every tear. Yes, you will be healed. Yes, you will be redeemed. New heavens, new earth. You know it. But we don't know it because deep down in the seat of our longings resides a functional skepticism, a nagging suspicion that the promises we believe are in fact too good to be true. And so we better make the best of our condition and just try to survive. And let's play the realist here, shall we? Why wouldn't we expect that? So much loss, so much pain, so much heartache, so much disappointment, so much betrayal, so much evil, so much death. Oh, how tempting it is to lay down hope, to lay down expectations and just try to survive. Day in, day out, low expectations, try to survive like a lame man begging for charity. We're not only like this man's condition. We're like, we understand this man's expectations. But let's watch the story turn on a dime. We are like him in his condition and we're even like him in in his expectations. But look what happens to him. We've seen what we want. Now let's see what we find. The attention to detail here is very uncharacteristic for Acts. And it's meant to draw us into the moment. You should feel anticipation and suspense as this man is about to receive far more than he asked or imagined. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. 
And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now that is a expectation more than his normal expectation. He can tell in the tone of their voice. He can tell by their look, their glare. He thinks this might be something different. And perhaps hope that he has daily learned to squelch is actually starting to rise up a little bit. And then verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Of course you don't. (laughs) I knew it. Too good to be true. Just when I gave hope a chance, reality beats it back down. Except that this time the story is different. We don't have what you ask for, brother, because you ask for too little. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Again, the uncharacteristic details are meant to draw you in. Just, just So let it, let it do that. Let it draw you in. Just listen and imagine. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles are made strong. Immediately the atrophy goes away. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It's the word leaping I couldn't get over this week, right? And leaping up, he went into the temple courts, walking and leaping. He's dancing in the temple, y'all. What an amazing imagery. From begging to leaping. And of course, praising. I love that progression in in verse 8. Walking and leaping and praising God. And if you take it even further, you see that it leads to praise of the whole assembly. And, and what that means is it positions praise as the highest response. Praising God who literally gave him more than he could ever possibly ask or imagine. The point is simple. No, you can't. But yes, God can. Which, of course, is the essence of the gospel. There is something here for us to notice that's... That, that admittedly is easy to miss. The temple is obviously very prominent in our passage. Day after day, he positioned himself at the temple to beg. Now, why is that? Because um, Jewish religion demand the giving of alms, and so the poor um, were strategic and would beg at the entrance of the temple, knowing that the religious were required to give to them. And so the imagery is this. This lame man surviving off the scraps of religion... And that's what all religions offer us. They are means of survival and self-improvement. But that day coming out of Israel's temple is something new. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the fulfillment of Israel's temple. And this name offers something completely unique that no religion can offer. Not an improved life, but a new life. Not a better you, a new you. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Never confuse mere improvement with the redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus came not simply to produce 
Um, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but, but to produce a new kind of man. His discipleship is not like taking a horse to teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like teaching a horse to fly. But what we tend to do with the gospel is expect it to give us what religions give us. Mere improvement. Maybe some better circumstances. Maybe this thing called heaven. We expect from it alms when in fact it is destined to give us leaping. That is to say, we ask too little. Your problem is, that you not, is not that you ask too much of God. It is that you ask too little. Again, C.S. Lewis. This one's more famous. You've probably heard it before. It would seem that our Lord finds, ourselves not, our, finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Like ignorant children who, who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You ask too little. Now let me be clear, lest this sermon turns into a health and prosperity sermon. When I say we ask too little, the application is that is not that we should therefore expect God to fix whatever ails us in this life, whether that be paralysis or something else. This is not the role of Christ's miracles in the Gospels or in Acts. In fact, to turn it into the miracle itself is ironically still reducing your expectations. If you simply ask God to fix what you don't like living with, then you still are asking too little. Instead, the miracles are meant to give us a picture of something much, much greater the redemption that is promised us in the gospel. So when I say you ask too little, I'm not saying you ask too little when it comes to your circumstances. I say you ask too little when it comes to the gospel. There is a need for us to raise our expectations of redemption. I'm not asking you this morning to name and claim better circumstances. I am most certainly asking you to name and claim the hope of the gospel that belongs to you. To name it, to claim it, to believe it. So here's, here's what I want us to do this morning, my application. I want to invite every single one of us to vulnerably expose ourselves to high hopes. That's a vulnerable thing, isn't it? Because we let our hearts go, go so often, we get excited, we get hopeful, and we get crushed. And, and the tendency is just to lower expectation, protect joy, and what I'm asking you to do is vulnerably open yourself up to the plausibility of hope. To stop expecting alms for the gospel as if it's just another religion to help you cope and expect without a hint of hesitation the total and complete redemption that is promised 
to you. Meaning, instead of indulging your doubts, which is so easy to do, Instead of indulging your skepticism and your fears and your uncertainty and your anxieties and all of these things that we tend to indulge because they're so easy to indulge, instead indulge hope and let it run wild and unhindered in your life. Now my caveat is if this morning you are refusing Jesus and his gospel, then just shooting you straight because I owe it to you, you should probably lower your expectations. You should probably make the best of things, keep begging for alms, metaphorically speaking, because yes, your cynicism is telling you the truth. This is as good as it gets. But it doesn't have to be. You could fall asleep this evening with wild hopes and expectations that are destined not just to be fulfilled, but to be exceeded. Trust in Jesus and then just let your hope run wild because he will always exceed it. But for those of you who trust and follow Jesus, I'm telling you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, let your hearts go. Indulge in hope. Dream your dreams of how good it could be because whatever you dream is destined to be exceeded. Courageously look at your circumstances today. Yes, your ailments. Yes, your ailments. But also your guilt. Also your sins. Also your shame. Also your heartache. Also your loneliness. Also your regrets. Also your betrayal, your abuse, your broken relationships, your failing health, and yes, even your own grave. Look at these things and instead of lowering your expectations to cope with them, look them square in the face and say to them, Jesus of Nazareth is coming for you. My Jesus is coming for you, and soon and very soon he will declare before all of heaven and earth, the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. Brothers and sisters, look at me, straight from the text. Like a beggar in our passage looked intently at the apostles. I'm not an apostle. I'm a preacher. But look at me. It really is true. And I mean all of it. Sometimes we just need to be reminded and recalibrated around the fact that all of this is true. Jesus, his gospel, his hope, and every single promise out of his mouth is true and will come to pass. You ask too little. And you need to raise your expectations of the Lord Jesus. Knowing with complete certainty that whatever you ask and whatever you imagine, Jesus is destined to give you more than you can ask or imagine. Let me pray. Raise our hearts and our expectations to heaven, O God. This is not vain hope. You are risen from the dead. You are ascended on high and you shall return. And so we do not hope in vain. 
you are true, this is true, all of it's true, we can, without fear or reservation or hesitation, let our hearts go and get drunk on hope. I pray we would do that. And I pray it would happen through this meal now that we celebrate in your name. Amen.